0: Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Airway First, the podcast from the Children's Airway First Foundation. I'm your host, Rebecca St. James. My guest today is Anne-Marie DeMarco. Anne-Marie is a pediatric occupational therapist providing in-home visits with a focus on child development in Fairfield and New Haven County, Connecticut. She specializes in sensory processing, developmental delays, primitive reflex integration, as well as children with autism and ADHD. She currently works in the birth to three setting and takes a holistic approach to treatment. She is passionate about educating both caregivers and parents regarding a child's sensory processing needs while promoting overall growth and fine motor development. Anne-Marie's goal is to ultimately improve a child's independence with their activities of daily life you can find out more about Anne Marie at anne ot.com and now let's jump into my conversation with today's guest Anne Marie DeMarco okay great thank you for joining us today Anne Marie i truly appreciate it oh of course thanks for having me absolutely absolutely all right so before we we jump in for parents that might not know the difference what is the difference between an occupational therapist and a physical therapist? And when would their children need to come to you?
1: Yeah, so um, physical therapists are wonderful. They, uh, you know, they sp- they focus mainly on like mobility, restoring function, uh, maybe mm-hmm. like reducing pain um, and preventing like further injury. So occupational therapy is a little bit different because we help people be able to to do the things that they want and need to do as independently as possible through like meaningful occupations. Um, I always say like, if you think of an occupation as an activity, it becomes okay. a little bit more clear. I think we hear the word occupation. We think of a job, you know, think a, a job,
0: yeah,
1: right. So occupations can be, um, you know, feeding, sleeping, toileting, showering, play, leisure. Um, there's a okay. whole host of occupations that we partake in um, on a daily, weekly, you know, basis. So with occupational therapy. Um, we really want to focus on like, for instance, I'm a pediatric therapist. So, you know, a lot of what I do looks like play and a lot of what I'll do is, you know, taking certain toys or activities and that the child already prefers. And we find Mm -hmm. a way to make it a little bit more therapeutic to work on, you know, some of the goals that the child might have.
0: Okay. So, you know, kind of building on that, so you're looking at tracking to skill sets and benchmarks based on their ages as you're going through this. So, um, you know, what is a session going to look like with you?
1: Yeah, so it really depends. I have, you know, I work with um, infants and I'm, I'm even, you know, up through, you know, kindergarten, grade school. Um, I have some older, older um I'd say teen, you know, teenagers, maybe that I'm working with, and now maybe I'm getting some adults that have some disabilities too, just because these day programs and I live in Connecticut, um, the day programs just are not, um, there's no availability for spot, you know, for spots Bye. for these people. So, um, it really just depends on the age. So, you know, with infants, a lot of what I do is, you know, just making sure that, Families understand tummy time, floor time is really important. Um, Working on like visual tracking, you know, everyone says to me, you know, what do you do with like a one month old and a two month old? And it's like, oh my gosh, you can do so much with them. You know, you can do tummy time and they can do visual tracking. And, um, you know, there's, there's a whole host of, you know, different things that you can do. A lot of the toddlers, um, even like some of the kiddos that are like kindergarten, I'd say first, second grade. Um, a lot of those kiddos that I work with are autistic. So mm-hmm. a lot of what I focus on is like socializing, play, attention, um, okay. just them, you know, those foundational skills so that when they're in school, they can sit and attend and learn in a group setting because that's usually very difficult for them. Um right so I incorporate tons of movement into my sessions. I mean, I'm never sitting down (laughs) a lot of the kids, especially, you know, after a school day, the last thing they want to do is sit down and
0: do
1: a a board game or read a book, which those are all great things. But a lot of the kids that I work with, um, crave a lot of that vestibular input, which is like movement and their balance and that different, you know, that sense. So, um, so they crave a lot of movement. So we'll do things like obstacle courses. Um, you know, I, wow. there's like swings that you can, I have a swing that I'll bring with me, um, you know, just certain visits and hang it up on the, on the, the swing set outside and the kids will go on the swings for core strengthening, um, visual tracking, bilateral coordination. So it's very much tailored to, um you know, what is meaningful to the child, like what they enjoy doing. And then mm-hmm. we can kind of go from there and, um you know, try to work on, work on some of their goals, but it, it definitely varies. um I think from, you know, from person to person, like OT is very individualized. So mm-hmm. it, it really just depends.
0: And what is, you know, we hear this phrase, tummy time a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and I, First to admit as a mom, I don't know that I did it right. I knew we had to do tummy time. Not sure I did it right, but I tried. <clears throat> what what are some basics, you know, as parents we could be doing as tummy time that actually helps strengthen our 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 little ones their cores, their skills. What what are some things we could do?
1: Yeah, so you know, f- um floor play is really good when infants are, you know, when they're within the first like few months of life, they can see mm-hmm. um black, white, and red, the best. So like you see a lot of these okay. have like contrasts to them. There's a right. ton of, you know, very colorful toys for us. We're like, oh my gosh, that's, you know, beautiful and colorful. Well, for infants, that black, white, and red. So now there's more and more like books. And I think, um, you know, like cards, like different, just different tummy time mats that incorporate those colors. That can help an infant be engaged and i always say you know if, if you as the parent can get on the floor with them just you're you know you're probably the most engaging you know engaging toy <laughs> you know, right right that that really that they have so um you know tummy time is definitely important um some of the little ones that i work with will even do like some side lying so you know just helps to like shape the rib cage especially my little ones that have reflux i work with a lot of preemies, um that are just okay. kind of out of the NICU. So, um, you know, they might be experiencing, maybe they've had like, you know, a G tube or there's something that sort of inhibits them from really being on their tummy. So we'll try to do, um, you know, some side lying, even just, um, having the infant, like up on your chest, we'll use sometimes like a therapy ball and just kind of rock them slowly back and forth, you know, side to side. Um, you know, and some, some infants are okay with it and they love tummy time. And then others, you know, depending on, you know, if they have reflux or torticollis, like they might not take to it so easily. So those are all Mm -hmm. kind of factors we have to bring in, um, and sort of, you know, work on, but but I, I would say, you know, it does sort of, again, like depend on the infant, but usually if we make tummy time a little bit more fun and engaging for them you know like we can't really like put them on the floor and walk away won't work right. and for a couple minutes but you know getting down on the floor with them and really helping them engage is a great way to kind of extend out how long they'll they'll engage in tummy time
0: and should we be working with them on things like you know pushing up on their arms or rolling or
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, just things like reaching out in front of them or, yeah, pushing, pushing up. um, You know, you can have them like setting up like toys kind of like in a circle around them, have them like pivot. That's a good, you know, kind of like those milestones that we don't, you know, we hear about the, you know, the sitting up and the rolling over and the crawling, but like in between those, there's some pretty awesome, like mini milestones. So like pivoting is a really great one, or even like just rocking on their hands and knees, learning to reach just to develop that eye hand coordination. Um, you know, I use bubbles with, oh my gosh, everyone, I mean, everyone loves bubbles, but that's a really great activity, you know, as they get a little bit older, um, to start to really visually track and work on eye, hand coordination, uh, reaching all of those things, all those skills too.
0: Okay. I like that. I, who doesn't love bubbles though, right? right? I know. Bubbles are great. <laughs> I love bubbles. <laughs> so in a previous podcast, which I'll include a link. For those that didn't hear it with um, Brittany Murphy, Um, she talked a little bit, a little bit, pardon my voice, uh, about primitive reflux integration. Mm -hmm. And I've heard you also talk about that as well as sensory processing. Yeah. So if you would just take a minute to kind of explain what both of those are and how they relate to the work that you're doing with children and their development.
1: Right. Yeah. So, um, primitive reflexes, they develop in utero and they're really present for survival. Um, they facilitate development and they also help with the birthing process. Um, so, you know, for instance, we, we, we all have, you know, there's, there's tons of these reflexes, but we have, Um, you know, one that comes to mind is like the palmar reflex. So when there's an infant and they're small and you put your finger in their palm, they automatically close their hand around your finger. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, that reflex is supposed to go away between, you know, six, six to 12 months when it doesn't go away and it lingers and say like a, you know, a five-year-old or a six-year-old seven-year-old that's trying to write or use a spoon or a fork to feed themselves, they really don't have good control over over their their motor movements because each time something a stimuli touches, they the still try to your hand. Yes, they're going to grasp it, and okay. so you know you look you you want to see like that you know this tripod grasp with a you know an eight year old that's writing and printing mm-hmm. and or um, even you know I'll hear um, some older older kids that I work with say like you know my hands like. I just get so tired so quickly that they can't do the monkey bars or they can't hold on to like one of those, like a trapeze and, you know, swing and and pick up Mm -hmm. their They just can't really do a lot of those things. So with the retained reflexes, um, they can impact, uh, you know, reading and writing, they can impact toilet, toileting, toilet training. Um, a lot of emotional. Yeah. So the one, and you know, this, this one is, um, The spinal gallant. and that helps with the birthing process. So, like when the infant is coming down the birthing canal, and a stimuli touches one side of their back, they flex towards that that feeling towards the stimuli. Helps them kind of make their way down. A lot of infants are be are born via C section. You know, it's like (sighs) so
0: they don't get that.
1: They don't have the ability for that reflex to emerge, and Mm -hmm. then the reflex is is then retained. Um, So. That has a lot to do with bowel and bladder control. Um, it's closely linked to auditory, our auditory sense, our sense of hearing. Um, so, and you know, kind of going on, you know, off of that with routine reflexes, when those are present, you always have like some kind of confusion within the sensory system. So, with sensory processing, you know, I ha- a lot of kids that I work with maybe will, um, you know, they might not want to touch you know, the sand that the kids are playing with in the sandbox outside at school, or they might, you know, be kind of engaging in some unsafe behavior, like jumping off something that's too high or climbing up the furniture in the house, because they're seeking a lot of input and trying to regulate themselves, but they don't really oh. know, you know, the right way to do that. Obviously, a lot of them are young, but, um, but with retained reflexes, when you start to see the confusion in the sensory systems, it's because reflexes help the sensory systems to mature so if like our foundation is kind of off a little bit and those those reflexes aren't integrated mm-hmm. it affects the sen- their sensory processing as well
0: okay wow that's fascinating yeah um yeah i would never have put that those together that's that's yeah. wild
1: yeah and i think like you know we don't talk about like so the vestibular sense that you know, we, we just, I just mentioned um, that has a lot to do with movement and balance that's located in the inner ear and then proprioception, which is um, it basically is. So, you know, if you see kids that, you know, someone comes home with the groceries and they run over and they want to like lift up something really heavy and like put it in the fridge or, you know, pushing a heavy box across the floor that Mm -hmm. has a lot to do with signaling to their joints and muscles. It signals to their brain where their body is. So heavy work, is something that is usually very regulated to these kids and sometimes they don't get it as often as they as they need it so that proprioceptive sense something like um you know we'll do like animal walks like okay walk like a bear or walk like a crab mm. so you're getting more input to your muscles and joints that signals to your brain. Okay. This is where my body is. I'm doing and I, you know, I feel, I feel a little bit more regulated. Um, sometimes like weighted equipment will come in or like, even when we chew, like, you know, crunchy snacks or things that are more difficult that take a little bit more effort to manage. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a whole host of ways that you can provide like that proprioceptive input. Um, and even the vestibular input, like, you know, swings or balancing on a, you know, along a curb on a walk outside, you know, a lot, and a lot of kids gravitate towards these things. And we're like, oh, okay, yeah. to oh, yeah. too high for you, or, you know, it's right. not right. We have to kind of, you know, calculate that risk, but sometimes we want to encourage some of that because. It really does help the sensory systems and usually will help to regulate the child if we can sort of um again like g- help to make some of these activities a little bit more therapeutic for them um, that they're already engaging in.
0: Right. So just support it in a safer right. way, maybe.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I like that. And I and you kind of touched on this, but as far as things like tongue tie releases and chronic sleep,
1: mm-hmm. how
0: can occupational therapy? Assist these children.
1: Yeah. So I don't I don't specialize in like I would say, you know, a lot there are some amazing OTs that specialize in like the pre-op and the post op for the tongue tie, like the release and everything. I'm kind of in the realm right now where I scream. Thankfully, I met Brittany and I'm able to refer to her for the time being. I hope to learn a little bit more about that. Um, but I'm able to sort of screen for it and see, okay, there is a restriction. Let me refer out, but there are plenty of OTs that have amazing experience, um, you know, with that, but as far as sleep, I mean, going back to occupation, sleep is a main occupation. So Mm -hmm. if we are not sleeping well and we are not breathing well, um, which I, you know, I just recently looked at my caseload again, 85% of my caseload has some type of air, airway disorder,
0: wow. um,
1: whether or not it is, you know, it is being treated or it's formally di- diagnosed. There is something there I've, you know, I've referred to, I'll refer to Brittany. There's an ENT that's in town that I refer to as well. Um, but sleep issues, you know, it's. <laughs> again like every other occupation is impacted when we're not sleeping and when we're not breathing well so you know and sleep issues can arise from retained reflexes so The spinal gallant, as I mentioned before, that can impact bedwetting. So if a child has a retained reflex, so they're already not sleeping well and breathing well, which we know also breathing can be affected or bedwetting can be affected by not breathing well too, Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, the spinal gallant. So if they're waking frequently during the night anyway, and then on top of that, they're wetting the bed, you know, four or five times a night, which also can disrupt their sleep um, you know, children that are in a fight or flight. So our, um, our moral reflex that there's another one called fear paralysis has a lot to do with our fight flight freeze cycle. So when they're not breathing and they're startling and they're waking up, it's like, you know, those, those hormones, the adrenaline and the cortisol are pumping through them because they're not breathing. It's survival for them at that point. So a lot of different, um, issues are arising, because of the reflexes, but also because these kids aren't breathing well at night. I mean, the number of children, um, you know, on my intake form, I have a, a little portion about like, you know, just asking about snoring and the, you know, the restrictions, oral restrictions and that they have reflux majority, like I was saying of these children have, um, you know, do, do have some type of issue with their, with their airway. Um, even, you know, add their adenoids are enlarged or their tonsils and it's visible to me, you know, their palate okay. is narrow, right? I, you know, I know there's a, I always forget the name of the scale, but it's, um, you know, like when they open their mouth and you can't even see the uvula in the back, I always forget mm-hmm. the name of that scale, but anyway, I, I mean, it's, it's clear to me almost immediately when I look at, when I do an evaluation that. There's some type of breathing issue going on. That's definitely, definitely impacting their sleep. So, you know, as an OT, there's, there's so much that we can do to help with sleep. And again, like a lot of it has to do with the sensory processing piece. So maybe, you know, for instance, bath time. So maybe bath time is more alerting for some of our kids, um, as opposed to calming so like instead oh. of doing math, like right before bedtime we can move it to the afternoon and maybe you know that linear swinging is more calming for them so we can do that mm. before time so okay. there's certain ways you know even like weighted equipment um that we can use so there's like weighted lap pads um vibration i have like um a pillow that like vibrates a lot of the kids really like that so there's certain ways to get a child to sort of like regulate before okay. bedtime and even, you know, I talk about sleep hygiene too. So a dark room, maybe, you know, environmental sounds, if they, they like the rain or, you know, whatever the case may be, um, you know, we talk about no screens before bedtime, you know, not using the iPad mm-hmm. or the TV. So there's a lot to do with the sleep hygiene, but I'm really, I think as I'm entering a little more into your, your world, right. I'm standing and I'm telling, I'm very, um, straightforward now with families. And I'm telling them like, if we, if your child isn't breathing well, I, there's not much that I can really do. I mean, we can try and we can see, you know, how it goes, but, um, you know, so many of these kids, as soon as I see them, they have an open mouth posture and they're not breathing through their nose and they can't breathe through their nose. You know, they're, whether their mm-hmm. adenoids are enlarged or it's a motor planning issue where they just have not been breathing through their nose for mm-hmm. however many years. They're congested and large adenoids, whatever the case may be. And again, like I will work on those things, but if they can't breathe through their nose because there's there's only
0: so much, yeah, right,
1: right. So I'm definitely still learning, but I feel as though, you know, like I was saying before, with sleep, if we're not breathing, we're just not getting adequate sleep. So right.
0: Right. Yeah. And I think it, it, the malin patty scale, is that what you're thinking? Yes, of?
1: that's it. I can it never, ever sticks in my brain. The mal- I'm going to yeah. write it down right now. Yes, that's it. That's it.
0: Yeah, yep. it's, a, it's, a, it's a crazy word.
1: yes. Mal- patty, yes. Mal-
0: and, patty. <laughs> um, and I'll put a, <clears throat> for parents that haven't seen that, I'll put a link to that as well in the show notes so they can see it. Because it's, you know, once you see it and then you look at your child, it's very eye-opening. Yes, okay. I
1: just yeah, it's it's just um yeah, and that's the thing when when parents have this knowledge, they can then advocate. I feel like you yeah. know, if you don't know what to look for at, yeah. initially. It's like you know, you don't know what you don't know. I'm still, you know, yeah. I'm still learning about certain, you know, areas too, but right, like if they can see, okay, this is this is typical and this is maybe atypical and need some mm-hmm. intervention.
0: You're listening to Airway First with today's guest, Anne Marie DeMarco. You can find out more about the Children's Airway First Foundation and our mission to fix before six on our website at children'sairwayfirst.org. The CAF website offers tons of great resources for parents and medical professionals, including videos, blogs, a recommended reading list, comprehensive medical research, podcasts, and so much more. Parents are also encouraged to join the Airway Huddle, our Facebook support group, which was created for parents of children with airway and sleep related issues. You can access the Airway Huddle support group at facebook.com backslash groups backslash airway huddle. Are you a medical professional or parent that is interested in being a guest on the show? Or do you have an idea for an upcoming episode? If so, then shoot us a note via our contacts page on our website or send us an email directly at info info@childrensairwayfirst.org at As a reminder, this podcast and the opinions expressed here are not a medical diagnosis. If you suspect your child might have an airway issue, contact your pediatric airway dentist or pediatrician. And now, let's jump back into my interview with today's guest, Anne Marie DeMarco. Yep. And I really think we should rename this podcast. You don't know what you don't know, because I swear <laughs> we say it at least once an episode.
1: Yeah. Well, I, you know, and it, we, it, just, it just is. Yeah. And I feel, you know, even, you know, I was talking to Brittany recently. I was, when I, I did, um, one of her podcasts a few months ago and, you know, I, we were talking about that and I, you know, I feel like too, we were talking about torticollis and its relationship with oral restrictions. I didn't know about that three years ago. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. know to look in a child's mouth, if there was something muscular happening, you know, and obviously, of course, like I do feel terrible about it, but I, you know, I also feel for these parents that are like, Oh man, like if I knew this sooner. So I think this podcast is wonderful because you do help to bring, you know, some of this information into families' homes, because it's not something that is really Mm -hmm. talked about that often.
0: It's not. And another important thing is it's not just with parents. I mean, we don't know, but there's so many providers that, you know, at least I'll say it, or they'll say it every episode, you don't know what you don't know, or yeah, we didn't learn this in med school. I didn't know it. Right. Yeah. We're all just kind of figuring this out together, which is really, and I know we touched on this a little bit, but, you know, more specifically, how does occupational therapy help to rebuild a child's synaptic connections
1: yeah so when you look at like you know that concept of neuroplasticity especially with re- reflexes like retained reflexes um you basically can rewire the brain and you can you know it's it's kind of that you know you you, you know use it or lose it concept but yeah. a lot of kids that have these retained reflexes like you'll see them compensating so by that i mean um you know, they sort of have, they know like, and, and some of the, I should also say too, some of the children that I work with just have retained reflexes and sensory processing. They don't have like a formal diagnosis, so they might not get okay. a in school. Um, so cognitively, you know, they, they really understand like, mm, I'm not doing that the same way as my friend is doing that, but I'm able to get it done, you know? So for instance, right. a child that has, um, an STNR reflex, which has to do with the upper and the lower body, you'll, you'll see them a lot of times they kind of like anchor their feet around the chair. So mm-hmm. like they kind of put their yeah. feet behind. I know exactly they, what you're talking about. Yes. Because when their lower body is, is like flexing, it affects the upper body. So for them to sit in a chair and write something It's like their upper body wants to do the opposite of what the lower body is doing. So for them to kind of um, flex their body, it's not it's not like a normal movement for them. Like I could sit here and I could write and it's perfectly fine, but I have all of that going through my head if I have this retained reflex and it's very difficult, but they're, they're getting it done. You know, their handwriting might be a little bit sloppy or they might rush through it or, you know, but they're, they're getting it done. So with that concept of, you know, neuroplasticity, as we kind of work on, the exercises and activities to help integrate these reflexes, you're sort of creating new connections in the brain so that they you don't have to compensate quite as much. They can kind of sit with their feet flat on the floor and they're able to kind of maintain that postural control and engage like in a, you know, a handwriting activity or a worksheet or something in school. Um, so that's why a lot of, you know, I can come in and, you know, when I come into the, into the home, I'll do a lot of these exercises and the activities, but the parent really has to make sure they're carrying over. Otherwise it won't, it won't have the same effect.
0: Right. Right, which makes sense. Yeah. Totally makes sense. So, one of the things as parents that if you have a child that's <clears throat> socially behind or underdeveloped, mm-hmm. we hear a lot of is play groups, play groups are the answer. So, is that, I don't want to say always because you're not supposed to say always and never, but more often, is that the right approach or is there another avenue that we should be looking at as parents?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, so Bursa 3 is a wonderful resource. I still work in, like, early intervention a couple hours a month, so it's um, ages zero through three, and every state has a variation of it. They're called, you know, different titles in different, in different okay. states, um, but that would always be, like, the the first, the very first thing I recommend is calling Bursa okay. 3, Okay. Um, I have some families that will even call me and they'll have like a two-year-old or, you know, one and a half year old. And I always tell, ask them, did you contact birth to three first? Because you can get like a team of people. So it could look like a social worker, um, behavior therapist, an OT, a speech therapist, physical therapy. It's a team of people that are kind of with you and, and, you know, they're able to sort of, um, you know, your child has to be eligible for the service, which they okay. can. Cannot- be. Evaluation, um, but even if they're not eligible, they'll still provide you with resources like playgroups or okay. Um, you know, there's a there's there's a lot out there that they can provide to you even if your child isn't eligible. um, For in, yeah, I mean, as far as playgroups, a lot of children that I work with do do attend them, but sometimes it takes a little while. Um, you know, just because, and I think especially during during COVID too um this so, that social piece was sort of taken away for well, noise yeah from so
0: all of us yeah
1: very very difficult for a lot of these infants that were born during covid to then attend a play group with so much they were overstimulated pretty much immediately sure yeah um so you know i think again like sensory wise it really depends on the child but play groups can be a wonderful a wonderful thing um i feel as though if your child is kind of over easily or quickly, it's always okay to just even talk to the, whoever's running the play group before um, beforehand and just say, listen, we're going to come and maybe only for three minutes and then we're going to leave, you know, so they don't have to be there. I always like to find, you know, play groups or music groups where they can move (laughs) or they don't have to just sit down because they're they're probably, yeah, they're probably not going to. So, I mean, parents can always, Reach out to them beforehand and ask these questions: Are they able to move? Can we come for five minutes? And can we leave? You know, asking mm-hmm. these questions before and even bringing some of those maybe regulating toys for them. So, um, you know, something like a, like a little like fidget popper, or mm-hmm. uh, if they can eat a snack during. You know, while they're kind of just watching, I'll have some kids that you know, even my little toddlers that I work with that I'll sit with, like on the outside, the outside mm-hmm. sort of, of the, you know, the play group while everyone's in the middle there. And yeah. they just need to watch, like they just need to sort of observe for one, two, maybe three, you know, three sessions and they feel a little bit more confident. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, but the beauty of verse 3 too is, you know, if, if the child is eligible, we go out into the community also. So having an extra support, um, and someone that's sort of, you know, used to it and is, you know, it's okay if you're, if, if your child is crying, like that's what kids do if they're apprehensive sure. or scared. Um, and I always recommend too, like a lot of the play groups that are local to, um, my area are at libraries. So I always just say, bring them, you know, bring Mm. them to the library before you can even talk to them. This is where the play group will be, or this is where the music class will be next week when we come back. Um, You know, so you can do a lot of that like prep work sort of to sort of prepare them. Um, But play groups are, you know, it's a wonderful way to get some of that socialization in, especially if they're not in like Daycare, or if they're you know maybe being you know watched at home by a family member, and they don't have the opportunity um, mm-hmm. to really socialize, groups are definitely great. It's just Good about finding that. the right fit.
0: Sure, yeah. and yeah. It, one of the things we see a lot with children with airway dysfunction, um, anxiety, and depression, just they travel together with it. So, you know, how can occupational therapy help these kind of kids?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, I think too. So usually what happens is with the retained reflexes and it's so hard to know, you know, like what, what came first in a way, you know, but right. with these reflexes, I do see a lot of kids, especially like I'd say eight, nine, ten, that do have anxiety and depression. Um, they do have this airway disorder, but maybe it hasn't been diagnosed yet. So In while I refer out, in the meantime, we will work on um, the that fight flight freeze cycle because a lot of the kids that have anxiety and depression that I'm seeing Mm -hmm. um, do have those retained reflexes, so the Moro and the fear paralysis. So we'll slowly kind of start to integrate those, and then in addition to that, we kind of will find some of those sensory um, you know, strategies that really help the, the child. So I always start like it really, again, I always say, you know, it depends, but I really, of course,
0: sure.
1: If I feel as though a child is very, very anxious, um, I'm not going to jump right into reflex integration with them because it can bring up some sensations in the body. You know, you can make maybe Mm -hmm. tightness in their chest or, you know, they might not be ready to kind of sit with that and sort of like Deal with it. So we'll look at, um, I do a sensory profile, which looks at different sensory systems and how that then can affect like their behavior or their environment, um, their, you know, how they socialize. So I'll pull from that and then I can kind of then make kind of like a list of strategies that I can give to the parent or to the child. So for instance, I talk about the swing a lot, but the swings, um, I'll usually like, it's kind of like a, like a lycra material so it kind of like squeezes them when they sit in it so they go in the swing like fabric and it gives them that sense of proprioception because Mm -hmm. to the joint muscles it's squeezing and then the vestibular that linear movement which is calming um so we'll do some of that like weighted equipment potentially um anything to kind of like I think regulate them and understand, okay, like I might not feel so great after. Cause a lot of these, a lot of the kids too will tell me in so many different ways with reflex integration, um, you know, oh, like this hurts or like, I don't like that. Or this makes me feel, you know, could be, and I think, well, I know it's just an uncomfortable an uncomfortable feeling when, Mm -hmm. you know, I'll, I'll, again, like when I'm testing the spinal gallant reflex, you touch a child's back and you go down there down their back and they don't have control over how they're moving. It's reflexive. It just happens. So, Mm, you know, instead of you can do that and they don't move. Yeah. So right, it shouldn't, they shouldn't move towards the stimulus right after that 12 month mark. So, um, you know, I just, I I just evaluated a 12 year old um, and she said to me like, Oh my gosh, like that, I couldn't even control how my body moved when you did that. And I was like, I know, wow. you know, even a five-year-old that I had yesterday, I was working on her palmar reflex. And she said to me, when you touch my hand here, my fingers move and it hurts. And I don't like it. So that's not right. Like that palmar, it's not supposed to happen, but they just like, it's such an out of control um, feeling for them. So I have to kind of be able to say and explain it as best I can to them, um, you know, this is, this is, you're right. Like this is how it, you know, how it feels and it might feel a little uncomfortable, but it will feel better. You know, this is why I'm here and we're working on, you know, how, so, um, I feel as though with the anxiety and the depression, I I would say 95% of the time, those children, in addition to the airway disorder have retained moral or fear paralysis reflexes too. Wow.
0: So what about weighted blankets for these kids to sleep with? Is that good or is that? I don't know. Does that, does that, did that help? Or is that something that's going to freak them out?
1: Right. So listen, again, like some, some kids like them a lot. Other kids are like, get this thing off of me. I can't, I can't tolerate it. So, um, I mean, listen, I sleep with a weighted blanket every single night. So does my husband? We have like two of them on the bed, you know? So you're not supposed to technically sleep with, sleep with them on you, but with children, because what can happen is their, their body can get like immune to it and it won't have the same effect. Gotcha. But okay. And it should be supervised as well. But so it's
0: more like, hey, take a nap or hey, watch a yeah, little TV with it or right. read a book
1: like, and then take it yeah. away. yeah Okay. So and they can kind of sometimes the weighted blankets too, um I feel like, well, some sometimes these kids like to have like a weighted stuffed animal or like a lap pad a little bit a little bit more, I think it's a little more preferred sometimes, but the weighted blanket, okay. even like a heavier blanket that you have in your house, like a throw blanket, mm-hmm. um, you know, sometimes that will like do the trick as well. But yeah, I mean, the weighted equipment when, and again, like, so with weighted equipment too, there's like that tactile system, so sort our of sense of touch. So some kids, I know, like if they can't tolerate wearing a backpack, which this time is, is coming up very, very quickly with the fall, I'm going to have to start working on practicing wearing backpacks with my little ones. Um, if they don't like how that feels on their body, usually they won't tolerate any type of weight on them. Um, we'll just have to find other ways. So different, you know, heavy work activities for them, for them to do, um, you know, some of the older kids, like I work with a 12 year old and he'll like, he'll take a TheraBand and he'll like pull on the TheraBand now, or like lift, like, you know, three pound weeks or something with his dad downstairs, you know, so there's other ways to give them that input. If they, mm-hmm. if they just can't tolerate the weighted blanket, but usually that is a more calming, um, strategy.
0: And you, and you mentioned kids that can't handle, you know, the feeling of a, a backpack and, you know, we are coming into that time of year. Yeah. What about, you know, if, if you're a parent of that kind of child, um, you know, what do you do? Can you do the, are the rollies the way to go until they're used to it? Or, or can you ease them into it? What's the, what's their right option?
1: Yeah. So I think with OT 2 you know, one of the, one of my favorite, I guess, attributes is that we can, um, yeah, we adapt kind of the environment or you can use some type of, you know, adaptive equipment. So something like, yeah, something that does roll, um, you know, it might look a little bit different. So then they can just sort of like carry in their hand, like, you know, if we can come up with something like that. Um, usually, that that hypersensitive tactile system, in addition to not wanting something on their back, has a lot to do with those spinal reflexes. So, mm. look at those. Um, okay. But yeah, so we can kind and I, I like to say like, you know, usually we we do get there. Like we'll start practicing, you know, next month. Um, I, I'll just have the parent like bring, you know, bring the backpack. And sometimes if it is weighted, which it shouldn't be that heavy, but if there mm-hmm. is a little bit more, um, like maybe a couple of books in there or something, um, not too heavy, but sometimes kids are more willing to try it if it's a little bit heavier because it gives them that regulating feeling.
0: Okay. Oh, that's interesting. So how do I, as a parent, how, how do I know that maybe my child needs occupational therapy?
1: Yeah. So, um, really it's if if they're, you know, if the child's daily life is impacted and if your life is impacted too. So, um, you know, if they're picky eaters, um, you know, you can't sit down and have a meal, you know, and I mean, not half right. night more. like if they are looking at food and it makes them want to gag and they can't uh-huh. sit smell of the food when you're cooking on the stove. Um, you know, if they're not meeting those like developmental, you know, I don't love the word milestones, but like those developmental ranges, you know, if they are going from, you know, they're sitting on the floor and then they're eight months old and they're standing, it's like, we want them to be able to roll and reach and crawl, you know, the, the, It's so important because when we just go to, you know, maybe just sitting on the floor to then standing, they're locking their joints out and they're not, they don't have to use that fluid movement or the muscle to stand. It's like, oh, I'm, again, I'm compensating. I've learned how to do this. And now I'm just going to start walking. We we want kids to crawl, Um you know, so if, and yeah, if they're, if they're sort of, I always say like anything with like sleep, if they're struggling with potty training, um, difficulty tolerating sensory input. So again, um, you know, some kids, they just don't love having their hair washed or, you know, it's, it's bath time is supposed to take, you know, 25 minutes. And it's taking you two hours, you know, start to finish. So any of those occupations that are really, Um, you know, really impacted, you know, I would also just say if they're toe walking or the open mouth posture or sitting in that W, they have like some of that low tone, um, emotional dysregulation. So a lot of the kids with their retained reflexes too, you'll see, I mean, I feel like the majority of the referrals that I get are for um, the social emotional piece. So kids that just, you know, have a lot of trouble interacting with with their friends or, you know, they lose a game and it's like they just throw, throw the game across the room and they run out, you know, and they're upset, right. for, lingers for, you know, an hour or two, you know, so anything like that. But I always say if their daily lives are impacted and yours are too, it's definitely time to reach out to an OT.
0: And when they're, I mean, I know obviously, one of the things we advocate for is this, you know, holistic ecosystem of providers, and let's look at the child as a whole, and let's all work together. You know, dentists talk to pediatricians, talk to occupational therapists, lactations, Let's all work together. So, if your provider doesn't have somebody they can recommend for you, and you know, you have to go off and Google or however, when you start the process of looking for an occupational therapist what are some things that parents can ask so we can make sure, you know, this is the right fit for our child?
1: Yeah. So I think honestly, like even um, if you do, you know, if you do, if you are doing your own research and you are kind of like Googling and you find a couple, maybe two or three occupational Mm -hmm. therapists that you're interested in, I think, you know, whatever your concerns are, there's nothing wrong with kind of calling and asking for a consult and, you know, a phone consult and just saying like, these are my concerns. What can you do to help with this? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I hate to, (laughs) I hate to go back to this. I feel like social media can be, A wonderful, wonderful thing. And at times it's not so great, but I feel as though through my social media too, like I'm getting more referrals that way because people are finding me and reaching out. And I always will do a phone consult, but I feel as though, you know, even reaching out to, you know, people have messaged me from all across the country. I mean, even outside of the country asking this question, um, especially when it comes to retained reflexes and the sensory piece. And I will like, I will try to find them somebody if they're in Texas or California or wherever they are, I'll send them to, um, you know, certain directories to look for OTs that can help them with what they want. You know, I post a lot about retained reflexes and sensory on my, my Instagram. And that's really, you know, I'm able to do that. And that's partially why I started my own business because I felt like I was very restricted prior to, um, yeah. So you know you can always reach us. I mean, I I always get back to people. <laughs> I, I don't I don't know however anyone else is. I get it. Like it, 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 it could be overwhelming at times, but sure. I always think too. Like it doesn't hurt just to reach out to um, reach out to people. Uh, you know, other professionals on on social media and even mm-hmm. you know asking. You know, sometimes if you know again like if, if someone's open to talking about it. Um asking around. You know, I feel like by by word of mouth, you really get better, um, you really? know, a true recommendation and someone that mm-hmm. had a good experience, maybe. So maybe a friend of a friend had, you know, their daughter needed OT and it was the best experience, and she was a great OT. And, you know, so I think just kind of asking, um, unfortunately, too, with you know, a lot of pediatricians and not all, but some it's kind of like this wait and see approach where like, mm-hmm. if it were me, you know, we would intervene right away. Whereas, right. so parents also have to advocate for that sometimes, like it sometimes, absolutely, you know, um, they, I think, you know, I'm hoping that this can change, but As far as development, unless you're seeing a developmental pediatrician, they don't really know a whole bunch about development or, you know, airway or, you know, anything like that. So I think it's very important to follow, you know, your intuition. If you feel like something is wrong, don't let it go. There's always outpatient services too. Um, And I always say, you know, like, even if you get into an outpatient or you start with birth to three, you start with an OT and it's not going well, you can always, you know, ask to change providers. Usually with birth three or outpatient, there's other therapists. And if it's not a good connection, you know, don't be afraid to ask to, to change, um, change providers either.
0: That makes sense. So at the end of every episode, I always like to hand the floor back to our guests because, you know, y'all are the experts, you know, best. So is there anything else you'd like to add, or a last thought to leave with parents, or maybe something we didn't cover that you'd like to share?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, especially with, I think kind of going off of what I was just saying about following your intuition, a lot mm-hmm. of families that call me. Um, I'm kind of like their last phone call. Like a lot of them feel, I think, a little bit defeated because they've known for a long time, like something is going on and we're not, we can't quite put our finger on it. So I feel as though something that's very important is to follow, definitely follow your intuition, but then you have to start really advocating for what you think is right for your child. Because I have sent so many kids to, an ENT that doesn't have experience with airway, you know, unbeknownst to me, and they've come back and it's like, nope, they're fine. And it's like, well, they have circles under their eyes and they have an open mouth posture and they're snoring, and they're grinding their teeth at night and they're waking up and well then, you know, well, what is, so I think just, Unfortunately, the world that we live in, um, you know, just doing your own research and really trying to figure figure it out on your own and then taking that with you to a medical professional or healthcare care professional. Um, you know, I think that when something seems like it's a little bit off, even if it is just a little bit off early intervention is it's priceless. You can never go back, you know, so that's why, especially with birth to three. Um, getting families started, even if they're just on the cusp of qualifying, I always say, Mm -hmm. just take it, like take it and run, you know, the same thing with, with outpatient OT. I think that like the earlier that we can get in there and kind of start helping even with airway, you know, the better the outcome will be. Mm -hmm. Um, So I always just feel as though if, if, if a parent or a caregiver thinks, that maybe something might be off usually they're right um and to kind of sometimes also just getting a second opinion you know if you still feel like oh i don't know this you know i went to this specialist and i'm not really sure definitely getting a second opinion can you know maybe confirm what you were what you were thinking might be going on
0: right because you know your child best
1: yeah absolutely
0: Mm-hmm. thank you so much for being on today and for you know sharing your information with us really really appreciate it
1: of course Rebecca thanks for having me
0: absolutely thanks again to today's guest Anne-Marie DeMarco for sharing her story and medical insight and to each of you for listening to today's episode if you're new to our podcast please don't forget to subscribe and if you enjoyed today's episode leave us a review or a comment telling us about what you enjoyed most you can stay connected with the Children's Airway First Foundation by following us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Parents can also join us via our Facebook support group, The Airway Huddle, at facebook.com groups. If you'd like to be a guest or have an idea for an upcoming episode, shoot us a note via the contacts page on our website or send us an email directly at info at And finally, thanks to all the parents and medical professionals out there that are working to help make the lives of kids around the globe just a little bit better. Take care, stay safe, and happy breathing, everyone.